0: morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. As we're walking through the Beatitudes, what does it look like to live a blessed life? You know, if you go on Facebook or Twitter, you'll begin to see these hashtags of hashtag blessed. Well, it's appropriate that running back for the New England Patriots would would post uh, Sony Michelle, who would post we 've been working since April for this moment, hashtag blessed and I, I I have so little interest in the Super Bowl this year. I tell you i wish I wish my heart is still breaking that the saints are not playing in this game, but I digress I digress uh, another one here, humbled and hashtag blessed to announce that I received an open parking spot right in I think we, we meant to say front, in front of my house, when I was in a hurry, glory to God. The final hashtag blessed that I want you to see, I, I don't know who these people are whatsoever, but it's just interesting when you, when you see what people uh, define as the blessed life, that this, this Twitter account here, all this individual does is post pictures of toy chickens, And uh, here is the latest one that was posted, January the 29th, with the hashtag, look at all of these chickens, hashtag blessed. You know, it is is, so trivial the way that we have taken this New Testament word of blessed and, and we reduce it. Now, of course... For an athlete who has spent his entire career getting to the pinnacle of uh, becoming, uh, for the New England Patriots, once again a Super Bowl champion, we could see how an individual w- would see that this was an appropriate utilization of blessed. But uh, so often we, we throw that word around and it has so little value. We get the parking spot that we desire and we say hashtag blessed. We, we yeah. post something that's trivial as our little interest and hashtag blessed. Uh, there, there are a lot of ways that that we use this word blessed, but I tell you this, when you walk through the social media accounts, one one way that you will rarely see blessed used is the way that Jesus used the word blessed in the Beatitudes. What what you're not going to discover in our culture are a lot of hashtag blessed that read as Matthew chapter 5 verses 6 through 7 read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does it look like to live the blessed life? Well, isn't it interesting to us this morning that Jesus defines that in a way that is so countercultural to our expectations of what it means to be a blessed person. Notice with me as we look at these two Beatitudes this morning, the blessed life is found in the pursuit of righteousness. That the blessed life is found in the pursuit of righteousness. In the English Standard Version, we discover in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. That word in the English Standard Version satisfied is oftentimes translated in other translations of the Bible filled or fulfilled. It has an idea in the original language of the New Testament as an image of one who has eaten a a nourishing meal and sits back and is filled or fulfilled from the meal. And so the question that Jesus is getting to is what truly fulfills us? What truly fills us? What satisfies our deepest longings? And the world gives us an endless all-you-can-eat buffet of items and pursuits, all giving the advertising that this will truly fill you. So our world says, satisfy your every lust, and then you will be filled. Satisfy your greed, then you will be filled. Satisfy your consumption, drive the right vehicle, live in the right car or live in the right home, uh, go on the right vacations, then you will be filled. We live in a land of plenty, but there is a lack of satisfaction in the land. We live in a land of more and more and more, more experiences, more stuff, more opportunity, but less fulfillment. Jim Carrey, the the famous actor said it very well. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can understand that it's not the answer. That you can get to the pinnacle of the mountain of success and no matter how great your view is, there still can be this deep longing, this deep hunger and thirst for satisfaction, what will fill your needs? Well, notice what Jesus says, that it is the pursuit of righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says, will be satisfied. Throughout the New Testament, this word righteousness is utilized in a twofold state. The Apostle Paul, often through his epistles, is going to talk about righteousness as a right standing before God. We as sinners receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus's perfect life salvific death and that is given to us by faith in the accomplishment of Christ and we are righteous while we are yet sinners we are righteous before God because of his righteousness that dwells in us appropriated by faith there's another way that the word righteousness is used and that is not only a right standing before God but right living for god Jesus utilizes this second understanding of righteousness here that is that is so uh, embedded in our first we can't live rightly for god unless we're in a right standing with god so we as sinners who've received the righteousness of god through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his salvific death here, we are able to live rightly for God through the power of the Holy Spirit and gratitude for what he has done to set us right. You just go a few verses down in Matthew chapter 5 and you notice how Jesus utilizes this word righteousness when he says in verse 10 of Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there are outward actions. That's not just an inner state of mind that Jesus is talking about. This is right living before God that is viewed by others and is persecuted by others. So when Jesus talks about us hungry and thirsting for righteousness, it's not just hunger and thirst for a right standing before God, but rather it is live out a righteous life in gratitude for how he has set you right with God. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to do good works. What does it look like to live the righteous life? Well, Wouldn't you know it that the Sermon on the Mount is the description of this hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What does it look like to live righteous before God? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, you just get a little bit of an example sampling of the ways that Jesus talks about right living. We are called to shine brightly before God So people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. We are called to seek forgiveness and pursue reconciliation. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. We are called to run from lust. Pursue purity in our thoughts and our actions. Verses 27 through 30. Look again in your Bible. If you're married, you're called to love your spouse to death Do you part. Verses 31 through 32. You're called to be a person whose word is trustworthy. It is dependable. Verses 33 through 37. You just continue in this. You're called to sacrificially serve those who you come in contact with. Verses 38 through 42. You're called to love your enemies and pray for those that don't like you. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. So the Sermon on the Mount is the description of the righteous life that we're called to it is when we are pursuing christ it makes a difference in our actions and there is a righteous standard that is seen in who we are and what we are doing not perfectly Because none of us will exemplify this perfectly, but what? We hunger and thirst to be filled in this righteous life that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount here. And as we live in Him, and as we abide deeply with Him, there is a change in who we are, our character. And so the fruit of the Spirit begins to be displayed, and people see love, and they see joy, and they see peace, and they see patience, and they see kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. What is this? It is the exemplification of a righteous life. It is the example where people look at us, and they see that there is something different in us. You might be here this morning, and you say, well, this just doesn't describe me. Well, again, none of us will be described perfectly by any stretch of the imagination here. We're called to live through the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue this righteous life. But you're here and you say, I I don't hunger and thirst for this. I don't desire God like this. Well, what would happen if you went to a doctor? you waited and then she saw you in the examination room and she begins to ask well what what are some of the symptoms that you're suffering from and the first thing that you said I, i've just lost my appetite well she's going to probe a little bit she very well may be doing maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have some tests that she does some probing questions that she asks, because your lack of a physical appetite is oftentimes an indication that there is a physical sickness that needs to be addressed And it very well may be, if you do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, it very well may be that you are not a follower of God. It very well may be that there's never been a time in your life where you've trusted in the finished work of the gospel, and you're here today, and you're in church, but you're not in a right standing with the holy God. And I think it's important for us to understand that when we do not desire to live rightly for God it might be, not always, but it might be an indication that we are not in a right standing with God. There's some of us in this room who our foundation is secure. We are believers in Jesus Christ, but we're here today and we say, you know, David, if I'm going to be honest, I do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't have a spiritual appetite for the things of God, and it might be that you as a follower of God are feasting not on the things of God, but the things of the world. One of the phrases that I grew up hearing from my mother, and one of the phrases that I hear Danielle oftentimes saying, and I occasionally say to our boys, is don't spoil your what? Is that not a phrase, choir? <laughs> Have you all never heard that don 't spoil your dinner is that does that did that not make it to Alabama? Surely it did uh, don 't spoil your dinner. You know what i 'm talking about right? You come in, you have three boys that come in they 're hungry from the day, so they go to the cabinet and they, they pull out the things that that really as danielle 's preparing a meal she has to say don't don 't fill up. On the marshmallows there, don't fill up on the chips there because I've got something that if you wait, this is going to satiate you. This is truly going to fill you up. So don't spoil your dinner feasting on the junk food that that you should not have. And there are times in our lives as believers that we do not hunger for the spiritual things of God because we're feasting on the things of the world. On our staff, one of the things that is a popular uh, movement and some of you have, have participated in this, or maybe you have family members that have, There at, at the turn of the month, there are all times of, of uh, kind of uh, pledges that for this next 30 days, I'm just going to eat whole foods. So you have this moniker, Whole30. So for 30 days straight, I'm not going to uh, drink things that are caffeinated or carbonated. I'm not going to eat uh, artificial foods or highly processed foods, and so you give those things up and you fill yourselves with things that are natural products. Now, I do not know this from experience because I'm kind of a whole two kind of guy. You know, I, I, can, I can go Monday and Tuesday and sort of give in by Wednesday, but people tell me that if you feast on things that are natural, that three weeks into it or four weeks into it, your cravings begin to change. And so what you used to crave, the uh, real salty or or real uh, sweet types of things, that you begin to crave those things that truly will satiate you and truly give you nourishment if you give yourself that your cravings begin to change. And there's some of us in this room that we crave the things of the world because we feast on the things of the world. And we haven't truly given ourselves to the things of God, and we're feasting on the things that we think fill us up, but we eat and we eat and we eat, and we are not truly filled because we're on a diet of the world, and the world will never truly fulfill us. I heard John Piper say, or I read a quotation from John Piper that was attributed to him that says, and I think this is so true, he said, I think that God has given us social media in 2019 to remind us we actually do have time to read and to study and to meditate upon the Word of God. And there are times in our culture where we're feasting on the things of the world and we eat of it, 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 and we eat, and we're not satiated. We eat, and we're not filled, because these things will never truly fulfill us. There's always another rung on the ladder to climb. There's always another experience to have. There's always the the better vacation to experience. There's there's always the the next uh, pleasure-seeking adventure or sinful giving to the world. There's always something else. The only thing that will truly fulfill us, will truly satisfy us, is God in his righteous state that is given to us by faith and us living that righteous life through the power of the Holy Spirit. The blessed life is found in the pursuit of righteousness. Secondly, this morning, the blessed life is found in the gift of mercy. Notice with me in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they sh- will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Beatitudes are these pithy kind of proverbial statements that, that do not have further explanation. And so for us to truly understand the Beatitudes, oftentimes, just like we did with uh, verse 6 here, we have to move outside of Matthew chapter 5 and to see how Jesus talks about this in other sections of the Sermon on the Mount and also have to see how the New Testament talks about this. Well, the commentary on Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 here is Matthew 6 verse 12 and Matthew 6 verses 14 through 15. Because Jesus is going to repeat this theme when he comes to the Lord's Prayer when he says, Forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's a way of Jesus given the repetition that when we receive the grace of forgiveness in our life, so we're empowered to forgive others. And this is an indication, not that we earn our salvation through us perfectly forgiving others, but it is a sign that we are forgiven by God when we're able to horizontally exert forgiveness and mercy to those that we come in contact with. Again, Jesus in Matthew 6, he goes on in verses 14 through 15, for if you forgive, notice that... Two letter word, if, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, what Jesus is saying here is, is one of the indications that we are living in a right standing before a holy God is that we've received the forgiveness of our sins and out of the overflow of gratitude for what he has done for us, so we extend horizontally forgiveness to those that we come in contact with, people that hurt us intentionally or unintentionally, people that harm us, people who cross us, Situations that do not go our way. The half brother of Jesus extends this same theme in James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, a part of the blessed life is this continual theme that we are going to be people who display a supernatural. Forgiveness and mercy horizontally to those that wrong us and harm us. That an indication that we've received the mercy and forgiveness vertically from our Heavenly Father, it spills over when we walk in the Spirit to those that we come in contact with. So your willingness to show mercy around you oftentimes is an indication that you've received mercy from God. If you find it impossible... You don't hunger and thirst to show mercy, to show compassion to those intentionally or unintentionally that have harmed you. If it very well may be that you've not received the mercy of God in your life. If you've received the mercy of God in your life, but it very well may be that you're a believer that's not walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit. I tell you one thing that the world understands is the world understands grudges. The world understands you, like Linus and Peanuts, having this blanket. And the blanket is the blanket of a grudge. And it is a blanket of forgiveness, unforgiveness, that you carry with you everywhere. You will always find a friendly ear when you talk to someone about how someone has wronged you and how you are not speaking to them any longer you will always find a friendly, interested ear. You will always find someone who desires to hear every tidbit of the juicy details of how this person has wronged you and how you desire to see them harmed. Maybe not harmed physically, but for them to get what is coming to them in our flesh. In our flesh, we will hold on to those places of bitterness and grudges. And as we are being conformed as believers into the image of Christ, one of the things that he does is he transforms how we see those people that have wronged us. And we're able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to begin to extend mercy. If you're here today and you're harboring grudges and harboring bitterness, and all of us walk through those paths, none of us are immune to this. We are like the words of Anne Lamott when she so powerfully says that not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. And there's some of us in this room who are holding on to grudges and we're nursing those grudges and we're feeding those grudges and we're waiting for that person to earn our mercy, to earn our forgiveness, and then we will transactionally show them what they deserve. But we misunderstand the gospel. You see, the heart of the gospel is that God did not wait for us to earn his mercy. God did not wait for you, nor did he wait for me to earn his forgiveness. He set his affection upon us while we were yet still sinners. And so there's one of two ways that you can see the people that have harmed you in your life. One of the ways that you can see them are people who have wronged you, and they deserve to get what is coming to them. And you see that person, and you only see them through the worst lenses. You only see them through the pain. You only see them through what they've done to you. And you will constantly be drinking rat poison that shackles you and imprisons you. There's another way through prayer. There's another way, not through your flesh, but through the Spirit, where you can see people that have harmed you and who have hurt you. And you can see them over time. This is not instantaneous, and this is not sometimes even something that we can fully realize this side of heaven, but the pursuit that God calls us to as we live the blessed life is to see people, even those that have hurt us and harmed us, as sinners just like us, in need of forgiveness, and we see them as God sees them as broken people in need of the healing balm of His mercy and forgiveness, and it very well may be that that's a family member that you need to see through that kind of cross-shaped lens. Maybe that is a coworker. Maybe that's an ex. You fill in the blank. Ex-husband, ex-wife. Maybe that's an uncle. Maybe that's a cousin. Maybe that's a friend who did gossip about you. There's no doubt about it. Maybe that's a friend who slandered you. Maybe that's a mother or a father who are, are with the Lord now, but there's still pains from your upbringing that you're holding on to, and it has shackled you in unforgiveness. And in many ways, you, you go back to those places again and again and again, and you go through that same terrain, nursing and harboring and holding on to something that ultimately has you imprisoned. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What is the mercy that we receive when we show mercy? What very well is the freedom of living in the present forgiveness of God's grace upon our life And then our identity that we are not shaped by our past, but we're shaped by Christ in us. And what was done to us, what happened to us, what was said about us, is never the totality of who we are because we are his. And we're in Christ. Just a few months ago, I was running this race. It was out at Oak Mountain State Park, and it was a long race. And so I had a lot of time in front of me. When I got to about mile seven, I was running with a good friend of mine. We'd run several of these races before. I reached into my pocket to get a gel out of my pocket to sustain me, to nourish me for the miles that were ahead. And I realized, uh, much to my chagrin, that I had dropped my phone somewhere in the previous seven miles in that race. And it was just this sickening feeling. I, it was a Saturday, so I, I didn't have time. I had a wedding that afternoon that I had to be at, and I only had so much time to run this race and get changed and get back up here to the church. And so I had to make this call at this moment. Do I go back and get my phone? On Sunday afternoon, I was flying out to Maine, so I had to say to him, I'm, I'm so sorry. I've got I've to go find this. And so seven miles into the race, I backtracked, Amazingly, someone had seen a phone. When I got to a place like like this right here, I I kneeled down to jump off this little cliff, and when I did that, my phone had fallen out. Now, this is the thing about my phone. I didn't need my phone, but it it was like this little blanket that I carried with me just in case something was happening. I'd have my phone with me just in case Danielle needed to get in touch with me. I'd have my phone, but it was really holding me back. And in that moment, I dropped it and I had to turn back, run five miles back, get the phone, and then run another five. So I had to add 10 miles to this race that I was supposed to run, and it was absolutely miserable. Absolutely miserable. And in so many ways, it is a picture of us with our bitterness and our grudges. When we hold those on deeply to our chest, when we hold on to that, what we discover is we are consistently backtracking in life. You ever felt that? We're always going backwards. We're not able to enjoy the moment. We're always going backwards and trying to, to figure out what happened then and what hurt me then and, and, and how did I not deserve it then? And we're always going back and we're always going through terrain that we've been called and set free from and we don't live in the power of what the Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind and pressing forward to what is ahead. Now there are times, do not misunderstand me, there are times That a good Christian counselor, good Christian psychologist, a good Christian friend will help us deal with some of those hurts in our past. So I'm not saying that we bury things and just move on. But at times, we have to give those hurts to the Lord. Lest we constantly backtrack in life, traveling down roads that we have already traveled to ahead to the future that God has given us. Another thing that happens with our grudges and with our unforgiveness is it isolates us from the joy of the present. I'll tell you what was so miserable about that race at Oak Mountain. is It's a beautiful, it's beautiful terrain. It's a difficult place to run. There's no doubt about that. But you get to the top of the mountain, you're able to see this beautiful canvas of God's creation. But to do that all by yourself is absolutely miserable. And there's some of us in this room that would would, would rather backtrack to our grudges and live isolated from the joy of the present because we're holding on to those things that ultimately God says, I desire to set you free. But the path of freedom is a path that goes through the terrain of you extending mercy and forgiveness. Now, how do we do that? Isn't it interesting in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talks about praying for our enemies? He talks about praying for those who persecute us. And so often we think enemies, they have to be thousand miles away. We think of enemies, they have to be people that plan terrorist attacks. There is always a principle of proximity that the people that are closest to us have the greatest potential to harm us. And there's some of us in this room in that principle of proximity that need to take those relationships consistently to the Lord in prayer. That asking him to set you free from the grudge and the bitterness that has shackled you and isolated you and consistently has given you the temptation to backtrack in life. And today is a path of freedom. If you would take that situation to the Lord, I'm going to give you just a challenge it is very difficult, I have found in life, to harbor bitterness and a grudge to someone that you pray for every day. Now, it doesn't mean you like them. It doesn't mean that you like what happened. But there is something that you hear when you go to the Lord on your knees praying for that situation or that person. And you know what you hear? You hear the sound of a key unlocking the change that you've been imprisoned in. And so I just want to give you a February challenge. I I want to give you, I I wish I could say it's a whole 30. It's not a whole 30, but it's a whole uh, rest of the month challenge. To just every day, that situation, that person, to be able to bring them before the Lord and say, God, today will you help me to show them forgiveness or mercy? And it very well may be that you're never in proximity with them. It very well may be it's not healthy to be, and that's okay. But asking God to bless them, to walk with them, to give them peace to allow His face to shine upon them. And when you do that in prayer, you know what you begin to do? You begin to live the blessed life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning understanding that The Beatitudes are an upside-down countercultural invitation to journeying with you that is beyond our comfort level. Oftentimes, it's not even in our frame of reference of what we would desire to do, and, and we can't do this in our own strength. So help us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live for you and to walk in this blessed way, showing mercy hungering and thirsting for the things of God. And as we do that, we begin to see what it means to truly be blessed. When we don't desire to do this as followers of God, give us that desire empowered by your Holy Spirit. When we don't have the strength to offer mercy to those that have hurt us or harmed us through the power of your Spirit, allow us to see them as you see them. Allow us to realize that we did not merit nor deserve your mercy, but you saw us in our sin, and you came to us. Even while we were alienated from you, a holy God, allow us to live that cross-shaped life, walking in the blessed path that you have for us, not only today, but in the tomorrows ahead. And as we don't desire to do this, give us your forgiveness and give us your grace walk in your way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.